Hello and welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast. My name is Josh Chambers, a medical student at the University of East Anglia, and this podcast, selfishly, gives me an excellent excuse to interview interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of backgrounds, drilling down to why they chose the speciality they're in and what it's really like to do the job. Thank you to all of you for your kind comments about last month's episode, and thanks to those of you who have suggested possible future guests as well. In this episode, we're concentrating on general practice, and you'll find out how there really is no such thing as a typical career as a GP. Today I'm joined by Professor Amanda Howe, a general practitioner who alongside her practice in Norfolk has, as of November 2019, been appointed the President of the Royal College of General Practitioners. Her career has been a balance of academic and clinical practice and I joined her in her office at the University of East Anglia to talk about her fascinating career. So I think we'll, we'll go back to the very beginning if that's okay. Um, so when you sort of started at medical school and, and where you trained and, and how you got into medicine in the first place. Sure, it's a good question because it's still relevant I think. I was definitely got into medicine because it was peacetime in England. I had aspirant parents. I was blessed by the fact that there were smaller family numbers than perhaps the previous generation, so my parents could put a bit more money and energy into helping me with my education. And then my school were amazing, so I would never have thought of doing medicine. I, my, you know, nobody in my family had ever been to university before. Um, but my physics teacher in A-level group, first parents' day, said, your daughter's bright enough to do medicine. And my parents were like, wow, that's amazing, because I was clever and I worked hard, but I was sort of thinking nursing, psychology, um, and it was her who said, go for medicine, and I got in. I was one in ten in those days, so mm. there was still quite a big gender bias mm. um, for against women, if you like. And so then it went on. Uh, what else helped? I guess I also was brought up as a child who was taught to care about others mm. and so I had that kind of oh it's good to earn a living looking after people and I, then I really liked science and I enjoyed biology particularly so it was kind of a combination of the life opportunities that I was given which let's face it doesn't happen for lots of people still so mm. I think that's um, definitely something I'm very grateful for. And you mentioned that the gender bias of one in ten there, was that something that you you sort of were aware of going into medical school or that you ever sort of faced whilst at medical school? Definitely. Um, I'd been at a girls only secondary school but I got lots of friends, youth club, church, you know, boys, girls, we all, you know, had had our normal social life together. When I went to university, I was actually at Cambridge and there were three women's colleges and two mixed colleges and all the rest were men only. And I met many boys who, you know, really didn't seem to have had much social life with women before because they'd been, I don't boarding schools or whatever. Mm. And so it was quite striking, the whole, you know, era. And also this was the early 1970s, so... Uh, the political environment was quite challenging. There was feminism, there was anti-Vietnam, there mm. was sing if you're glad to be gay. 
And so that actually was quite helpful to me as a student because lots of people were talking about what's this mean for us? You know, what's it mean for medicine? How can you change the way that the old hierarchies and leadership work? Um, and I've, again, I found that helpful. I did social sciences for an intercalated degree. So I had quite a lot of the discussions, sociology, psychology side about that um, and some good tutors. So yeah, great. Yeah. And I've read somewhere that, uh, that, that what you've written it is that, you know, you, you said a bright girl like you was, was sort of shouldn't go into general practice. Well done, yes. Um, so, you know, has that changed now? Is that something you're aware of? As GPs, there is, there is a stigma around it. Which... Yes. Well, we know that it hasn't changed as much as I would have wished because the WAS report from a few, only a few years ago looked uh, through students' reports to the GMC about different career profiles and there was actually a big consultation on it. Anybody can read the report online and people were still saying some people bad mouth GP. Mm. Um, the story you've looked up uh, was uh, my tutor at clinical school. I was at the London then. And I actually travelled in Africa for a couple of summers, you know, that thing where you save up your money and then when you've got the long vacation, mm. you've worked in the Christmas and Easter and a month or so in the holidays and then go off and backpack and do voluntary work yeah. somewhere. And I was doing that. And I came back from Africa really, really shocked about how sick people got before they were looked after. Because in our country, and then we had the NHS, mm. we had free maternity care, we had vaccines. Um, and I was really, really shocked at what happened when the, that comprehensive public health and primary care service wasn't there for people. Yeah. and talked to a couple of friends and, you know, came back and said, I'm going to be a GP. And my nephrology tutor said what you've just said. Mm. And I guess it was a little bit of a protest choice as well, maybe. I was still in that, you know, value-driven bit. But I've never regretted it. And I do think that to prevent things, you know, to help people not to have kids until they're ready to have kids mm. at the time of their choosing, to fulfil their life potential, you know, mm. that in itself is a yeah. fantastic thing when you go around the world because many, many families don't have that opportunity to make those choices and match them to their economic opportunities, just one of hundreds of examples. And it's really great when you, you know, catch something early and stop people being damaged by it. I saw lots of older people when I was a young doctor who had ridiculously advanced cancers, even in this country. Mm. And very rarely now, thank God, do we see that. So, um, you know, you still see on the press, oh, you know, GP, people have to go twice before they realise yeah. it's cancer. Yeah. Well, it's partly because we're getting things early, you yeah. know, trying yeah. to pick them up early when it's quite unclear. But it's much, much better than in systems in the world where people don't have that opportunity or can't afford it. So there's a big discussion about universal health coverage, which is not a GP-specific discussion, but strengthening primary care to make good value of those early contacts is a big global discourse, which, again, I've been a bit involved with, and I think we all need as citizens to be thinking about that, even in the developed world, let alone in... How do you think we, we change the stigma, though? I mean, you're, I've experienced surgeons, you know, yeah. sort of 
say off off the cuff comments about GPs and you know, even now, you know, moving forwards and your role and now as the Royal College yeah. with general practices yeah. as well. How do you think we we move forward with that? I think there are probably three parts to it. If we do our job well clinically, our hospital college should be seeing that and respecting it mm. and saying, oh, you know, no, GPs are doing good, they're doing better. So I think high quality care mm. is one way to stop people, you know, telling us we're doing a bad job. The second is the simple principle of respect. And I think the speaking up campaign actually has something to do with this. Okay, we've been hearing people trying to address racism, trying to address sexism, but I also think denigration of any mm. a professional group, you know, mm. would be no better if I was dissing the surgeons. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, sometimes a bit of a sense of humour you have to have, mm. isn't it? Mm. But I think, you know, making sure we rule our speaking by yeah. respect. Yeah. Um, and then the third part is having a real presence in the medical school so that the students themselves are saying, no, they're great, you know, yeah, that's, they're yeah. doing a good job out there. Yeah. And some of the students will already choose to be GP and they're often our best advocates, mm. actually, yeah. with colleagues in the hospital because they'll say, no, actually, that's not my experience. Mm. Are you sure, sir? Yeah, and that's yeah. So that challenge, I think, would be very valuable. And I can't, you know, I can challenge a colleague, but actually, it's almost better if the students. Yeah, yeah. And from my experience of seeing GPs, you're absolutely right. There's some amazing GPs out there doing teaching and and many more with patients as well. Moving on slightly, you've obviously had uh, not your perhaps typical GP career, if there is a typical GP career. But you've obviously moved into leadership and academia and things like that. How, How did you get into that and? And, yeah. you know, how's that job role evolved as, as you've been um, yeah. Yeah, going through your career? Well, again, I, I didn't have a vision of a mature medical career. I wasn't in those networks. So the idea of like, royal colleges or academic mm. actually was very, very unclear to me when I started as a GP. But the thing that drove me was, again, a, a value that... I and my colleagues in my practice and the practice around me were very keen to change medical education because I'd had one week in general practice in six years. And as my tutor also told me, that's how to teach you not to practice medicine, how? In fact, I completely disagreed with him. I found it absolutely intriguing. And some mm. of us started to make, you know, informal placement opportunities of our own out in the East End because we were so interested in that area of work but anyway um so my first real mission after I you know got in as a partner and got used to doing a one in four and had my family was do more teaching and training and we were teaching in the practice and we were doing being a training practice but then an opportunity came up to go onto campus and teach like the GPs do here on Mm. PBL and consultation skills Mm. and my practice did yeah somebody should go because we'll get more of a foot in the door Mm. that was me the interesting thing was that immediately the professor of general practice came to all the new tutors and said not enough academics in general practice we haven't got a strong research status and we want to grow this would any of you like to do a master's or an md and i as i told you actually been quite bright at uni and and so i was thinking oh yeah actually i haven't used my brain much in the past few years i'd like to do that and and i floated and the other thing i realized was that 
in order to be really influential in the medical school, you had to be part of the medical school. So being a part-time GP tutor wasn't going to change the curriculum. I had mm. to be in committees mm. and I had to be an academic post holder. And I was supported by other people, but that, that was what really shifted me. It was being given an opportunity by a senior colleague. It aligned with my values and it aligned with my competencies. And one thing I would say to you and your colleagues is you'll never get anywhere if you don't do your job well. So people don't give you new opportunities if they think you're crap. So, you know, it really matters to sort of deliver on what you've already committed to because people don't then come and say, oh, I saw that woman and she was speaking up well and what do you think of her? Oh, she's, yeah, she's great, she's bright, very committed. Right, bring her on to my committee then. So a lot of my leadership stuff has happened because people came to me, but they wouldn't have come to me if... I hadn't already tried really hard to do the right thing mm. already. Do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. I think that's something you forget in leadership. People sort of think it's like something magic happened. No, mm. it's hard work, it's doing the right thing, and it's having the right networks. Now, often people don't, you get a bit stuck down in medicine, mm. but it's good to get out of the box. Another way I made networks was just saying to people, oh, you go to that committee, could I come and shadow you, please? Could I come and sit in when you go to college council? And we try now with younger doctors to say, you're very welcome if you want to come and see some of these tedious meetings where big decisions get made. Mm. And you again, people then know your face and they say, oh, you know, there's that woman who's the senior lecturer, maybe she'd like to come and do this. So yeah. I think networking is another way that I found helped yeah. with creating new opportunities and of course if I hadn't if I didn't have time or I thought they weren't the right thing or I thought they were immoral opportunities I would say no sure. but otherwise I yeah. would say yep I'll give that a try and then some of them led on so national leadership once you're producing research you want your research to be used so that's where you then start taking it and saying this could make a difference to mm. clinical practice nice mm. all these guidelines yeah. things yeah. And then again, college, blah, blah. Mm. But, um, I, but sort of a, a, a different question, a different sideline question is, where do you see the future of general practice? You have sort of um, technology companies now, Babylon Health, yeah, yeah, uh, sort of Skype, you know. Uh, do you see that as the future of general practice or, or is this No, I don't. I, I think it probably will become quite a routine part I mean, we're already using online consultations, mm. particularly in rural. You know, I've seen it used very, very often across, you know, rural and remote communities. But there is no replacement for the person who's got four or five different comorbidities. You know, let's pretend, you know, the young person who smoked quite a lot when they were younger, worked in a factory that wasn't very good for their health, you know, mm. gets chronic lung disease by the time they're in their late 40s, hypertensive, high cholesterol, yeah. gets a bit depressed because they're losing their job. You know, that's not going to be a quick consultation and you're not mm. going to be able to educate or empower somebody to get more control over their own health and well-being by doing a quick online protocol. It's more that the team, the local team, the people mm. who, nurses and me and the healthcare workers, 
you know, get behind that person and support them until they stabilise those things mm. and they can move on. They've stopped smoking, they've lost a bit of weight, they're not depressed anymore. Yeah. They've got another couple, 20 years or so of life that maybe will be better than the last lot. So I think there will always be a place for the generalist clinician, diagnostics, chronic ongoing management. Mm. I think we'll become more and more like a consultant so I, I even now a lot of people are seen for routine chronic disease management monitoring by my nursing yeah. colleagues yeah. and that's absolutely fine providing they know them as people mm. and they are known as people it you know it's fine mm. they see amanda they see brenda they see john yeah great we're all people together but i find a lot of the patients i'm now seeing have already been seen by somebody and that might be babylon mm. but yeah. then they come to me because it didn't sort it out. Right. So I think the AI bit will do, you know, quick diagnostics and also helping us to check at what we haven't thought of. So yes. the sort of protocol yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I had a patient yesterday and I was I just actually went on to a protocol because there was something really puzzling and I was thinking there's some diagnosis you haven't thought of. Right, and just click in your mind. Yeah. So I think it's both and I think the idea that you can get a quicker cheaper service that's as accurate from a computer is probably not going to show itself mm. and you're talking obviously you saw patients yesterday and this is to be the last question i know you're pushed okay. for time do you miss do you miss clinical time i mean i know you obviously you've got lots of other roles and things yeah. Yeah. Do you miss seeing patients as much as you used the, to the point that you really remind me of was when i stopped doing on call when i went full-time in the university my last medical school I dropped to two three sessions a week mm. and I came off the on-call rotor and the big thing that I missed was I could no longer do palliative care mm. and there were patients one or two patients who I knew very well who got ill and needed end-of-life care and I couldn't provide it for them as the named doctor and that I felt really bad about um, Oddly, I've been at Bothorpe Clinic in Norwich since I came here, so I've been here about 17, 18 years, mm. and quite a lot of people, even on just a couple of sessions a week, I'm still their doctor. Yeah. Eventually, that has to stop. We all have to give up clinical eventually, but I found it is possible to have continuity unless somebody is very sick and needs very frequent care. Mm. And then the modern team, again, you know, you have to make it work across the system but if people can wait for a phone call mm. you know or i can book them in in a couple of weeks time that's for ongoing care that's fine yeah. and continuity and that sort of trusted relationship i think it's a privilege as a clinician i think that's yeah. something i wouldn't like in the hospital because you do what you do for the patients but then they go yeah. most of them some of yeah. the specialties that's not true for most of them but for us it's it's a life and you learn so much about people. I've mm. learned so much wisdom about living from mm. my patients. Yeah. So, it, you know, yeah, I, I do miss not having the full clinical scope. On the other hand, I absolutely love teaching. I love seeing young doctors come on. I love seeing colleagues mm. thrive and do good research. I love seeing politicians back off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's other ways to yeah. uh, reach professional satisfaction. Thank you very much, Professor Amanda Howe, for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome.
Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to hear more from us, please consider subscribing to your podcast provider. You can also follow Geeky Medics on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you with suggestions on who you would like to hear from next. Thank you to the producers of this episode of the podcast, Alex Appleton and Dr. Lewis Potter.